Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I need <laughs> <laughs> actually doing this okay yeah sometimes i just have to take you by surprise that's all yeah it's it's nice that you can still surprise me darling <laughs> uh, i am full of surprises oh are you yes well that's the last one i have planned for tonight oh okay i was waiting i was like oh my gosh is there like a bear that's gonna jump out at me like the other night no 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 i'm not <laughs> hiding a bear in my pants <laughs> Um, that's uh, not weird. even, that's not even what I was, re- that's not even what I was referring to. I was referring to when we were having the campfire and we heard the growling yes, and no, I, I, we came inside. I didn't, I wasn't talking about your pants, but you know, I guess, uh, well, I'm just thinking where else in this tiny ass room would I be hiding a bear? Like maybe in the bathroom, bear. in the bathroom or in my pants. That's kind of, this is sort of the only two places that you cannot see right now. All right, everybody. Welcome to campfire classics. Uh, <laughs> if you were going to surprise someone with a bear. Where would you keep it hidden? Not in your pants. Inquiring minds it. want to know. <laughs> like, that sounds like the worst place to hide a bear. How would you hide a bear in your pants? I don't know. Where, how would I hide a bear anywhere? I don't How would I surprise you with a bear? I, everyone should be surprised with a tiny baby bear that snuggles them and loves them forever. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing. I'm asking you how I would hide that particular bear. That's not up to me. You're the one that's full of surprises. <laughs> Yeah, but I told you I was done with surprises. All right, this has been a weird start. Uh, hi, strange, everybody. Strange energy. Weird energy. Weird energy. Well, I think it's because we uh, we know tomorrow we are traveling and running our first Spartan race in like two years. Yeah, since quarantine. So we're getting back at it. So t- today uh, we were just kind of taking it easy. We went for little runs, and we're gonna we're gonna climb on some shit tomorrow and uh, aru 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 baby there will be lots of mud and probably pain involved actually as you're listening to this right now it's already it happened over. two days ago yeah so if you've made it this far into the episode and i hope you have because we're only about three minutes into the episode <laughs> um it's been please, weird but stick with us please reach out and see how we're doing because it's possible that there is much pain and suffering going on and we will want a friend to say hey it's going to be okay. Yeah, but uh, uh, that's kind of what we're up to this week. It's our last week in North Carolina as well. Yeah. So I got to see um, my best friend from high school this week, and Ken got to meet him. One of my dearest, dearest, dearest friends from high school, um, Corey. And it was so good to see him, and it made me so happy. We met at a brewery called Fauna and Flora Brewery, or Flora, Flora and Fauna. Flora Fanta. Flora Fanta? Yeah. I was calling it the wrong thing the whole time. I think I tagged the right place when we were there. But yeah, uh, Flora Fonta Brewery in this tiny little town, um, Morgantown, North Carolina. Um, That was a really cool spot. Uh, Very uh, um, uh, liberal for the area. Um, They had uh, pride flags hanging up and um, 
It was a very welcoming area after we drove by the largest Confederate flag I've ever seen ever on the highway. So if you're ever traveling um, through North Carolina and you see that, Ken and I wanted to set fire to it, but, you know, we didn't have our, our blazing arrows, so... Yeah. Uh, also, while we were there, uh, because this this uh, brewery only does beer, it doesn't do food. We ordered uh, food from this place down the street called Greenway Pizza, and the delivery, the delivery guy was Bad. awesome. If anyone who works at Greenway Pizza in Morganton is listening, um, I don't know what this guy's name was, but he's kind of got like long <laughs> grayish hair. Um, he came like over like a white. He, he showed up. He had the coolest personality. He delivered food to someone else. He was. He came over to our table and was like, "Hey, how you guys doing? If you want some pizza," and he put the the menu down on the table. And he was like, "I'll be here in twenty minutes." And, and he was. And he was, which was like twenty minutes faster than they told me the food was yeah. going to get there. Yeah. He was there in twenty minutes, and when he realized that they had forgotten to put plastic silverware. silverware uh, in the the bag for my salad, he went away and he was back in like five minutes, maybe yeah. with plastic silver. Dude was awesome. Food was pretty dang good. Uh, delivery was quick. Check them out if you happen to be in Morganton, North Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina. We're giving some good shout outs to this town. I mean, go check it out. They're also it's the Deaf School of uh, um, North Carolina's there. Yeah. Um. So it's a it's a little little adorable town with some some cool places. So, so as long as we're supporting people. Yeah. Uh, do we have any promos this week? <laughs> oh my gosh, we totally do. Well, tell me about it. Well, this week we have a promo for a podcast called. It goes down in the PM. It sure the hell does. Yeah, it does. You want to listen to that promo? I, I, I do. Let me cue it up here. What's going on, everyone? This is your girl, Julie, host of It Goes Down in the PM. We talk about everything from work, motherhood, local celebrities to comic books. Tune in every Friday at 1 o'clock to find out what really goes down in the PM. That's cool. a groove. I'm still just I'm just still just jamming to the music. That's that's a legit groove there. I, I like, like it. it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I need to <laughs> I need to remix our promo. <clears throat> yeah, we're gonna we're working on that. But yeah, so you should go check uh check her out. Um she has uh, a sound effects and music arranger, um, Paul, um, who did her music and like does all the sound effects and stuff when you listen to the episode but her most her latest two episodes are entitled surprise motherfucker which <laughs> kind of goes with our uh the beginning of our episode very, very nice with the theme full of surprises another master of surprise i see um and then barbie yeah fuck her <laughs> <laughs> And with my host Ken sitting by me, I, I he can solidly say, yeah, he agrees with that. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so I know that my parents went through uh, a few different names w- when I was born and decided, oh, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We don't want him to get beat up. We don't want him to get made fun of. And they settled on Barbie's boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was rough. But yeah. But Barbie can fuck herself. I mean, let's be real. Like that. I, I'm glad they're now I making don't think, Barbie. I don't think she can. She's not that well, flexible. She, well, it, all right, she's pretty flexible. I mean, you can make her do lots of things, but she does not have any genitalia. So that yeah. that is an issue. She's also only flexible in like her the, the hip socket <laughs> and the shoulder socket. That's true. There's no waist mobility. There's no like. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. So Barbie just, anyway, I'm glad that they're starting to make Barbies with like different skin tones and different body types because let me tell you, I, I got to blame um, some of my uh, my uh, eating issues as a young one on like the media of America, which is Barbie. So, so yeah, Barbie, fuck her indeed. So go check out uh, Juline on uh, It Goes Down in the PM. Yeah. Everybody knows that the ideal body type is My Little Pony anyway. Oh, I love My Little Ponies. I had the ones where you could scratch their butts and they smelled like things. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. No, No, it's real. I'm sorry. You grew up with scratch and sniff horse butts? Yes. They definitely had a, like, there was a special edition, like, brand of My Little Pony where they were, like, peaches and cream and strawberry cobbler or something like and so when you scratched their like the patch that had a scratch and smell it smelled like peaches or like strawberries so um it did not smell like horse ass <laughs> i'm 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 gonna tell you that the most upsetting thing about this to me <laughs> is not that my little pony is teaching children that horse butts are safe to <laughs> scratch and then stand behind and smell and it, is not, and it is not that My Little Pony is teaching children that horses smell like peaches and strawberries. <laughs> the most upsetting thing about this to me is that as you are explaining it, I'm fairly certain I had them too. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> Damn right. Damn right. Woohoo! Yeah. And it wasn't their butthole. It was like their thigh. I, I know. It was on the, the it was like sort their of hind. Yeah. It was like their hind leg. The, the, but, the, one, the one butt cheek, not yeah. the butthole. Not- I know. <laughs> But you know, yeah, if you were a child of the 80s, early 90s, I, I, I'm, I hope it's bringing back a memory to you right now of, of sniffing uh, pony butts. <laughs> uh, yeehaw. So, I don't know how we get out of that one. I don't know, but yeehaw, America. Yay, it's, it's 4th oh, of yeah. July week. Happy 4th of July. This is going to be the last episode we release before then. And so. because of that, uh, I have chosen an author that is a very Americana classic. So that's how we get out of that. Great. <laughs> there awesome. you go. See, I did have a path out. I Born on the 4th of July? He was not born on the 4th of July, no. but he has some connections to the 4th of July. Ever played by Tom Cruise? Uh not that I know of. Tom Hiddleston's played. Holy him. shit. Now I'm on board. Okay, what are we doing? This week, our author is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, cool. Yeah. Tom All Hiddleston right. played him in uh, Midnight in Paris, the uh, Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that. Yeah. I, All it, right. It was be- like the last time I saw that movie was before I really knew who Tom Hiddleston was. Yeah, it was back when he was most famous for being a stage actor and doing Midnight in Paris. Yeah. Because I like I was doing my research today and I'm like, that freaking is Tom Hiddleston. Holy crap. All right. Wow. All right. So if you are a first time listener and have made it this deep into the podcast, you should know that what we actually do is (laughs) uh, take turns every other week reading stories uh, chosen for us by the other host. And this week, Heather is choosing a story for me. Apparently, the story she has chosen is by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And now she's going to tell us a little bit about him. Yeah. So I'm excited about this one. So I, I, I wanted to do, because it's 4th of July, I wanted to like do a 
classic America. So let's learn a little bit about Mr. Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. He was born September 24th, 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, in an upper middle, middle class family. Um, he was named after his second cousin, thrice removed, Francis Scott Key. Like the guy who wrote the, who wrote the Star National Spangled Anthem. Banner. So not only, and I did not know that when I picked him. I was like, oh, this would be great. And it'll be 4th of July. Then he fucking, he's named after the guy who wrote the Star Spangled Banner. So it was meant to be. Uh, also, his first cousin once removed, Mary Seward, was hanged in 1865 for conspiring to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Oops. <laughs> All right. So sh- we got some deep. We got some deep family like Americana. We some, what? We got some conflicted American ties in this mm-hmm. dude's family. All right. Yep. So early on, uh, he identified as a boy with very high intelligence and a very early interest in literature, like most of our writers. At the age of 13, he published his first work, a detective story, in the school newspaper. Aww. Yeah. Uh, In 1911, he was sent to Newman School, which was a Catholic school because he was in a Catholic family, uh, in Hackensack, New Jersey. (laughs) So from Minnesota to Hackensack. All right. Yep. Uh, his teacher, which who is Father Sigourney Fay, um, actually was the first teacher to really recognize his literary potential and um, encouraged him to pursue a career in writing. Um, after graduating from there, he attended Princeton University. So bougie. While he attended Princeton, this is when it gets starts gets gets spicy. Fitzgerald met a Chicago socialite named Genova. Javira, I can't, I've never seen this name before in my life. Geneva. Geneva. Yeah, it's a weird name. All right. Anyway, she doesn't stick around that long. Uh, (laughs) Geneva King. (laughs) So we'll call her Miss King. Miss King and uh, Mr. Fitzgerald had a romantic relationship 1915 to 1917. All right, so she stuck around for a bit. Well, yeah, well, he was in college. He was the college sweetheart. But immediately he was infatuated with her but she kind of strung him along knowing that her status was above him. Um, he remained he remained devoted to her, um, even though her father was uh, literally said to him one day, quote, poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls. She became a deep inspiration for the character of Daisy in The Great Gatsby and other characters in his novels and short stories. He tended to write about women who were in higher status and men trying to like climb status to reach them. So clearly uh, she had a lasting impression. She didn't stick around long, but you know, but she stuck around in his brain. Yep. Uh, So their relationship ended when he uh, was at Princeton and actually around that same time, he was focusing on writing so much that his studies went downhill and he was placed on academic probation. So he said, well, fuck it. I'm going to join the army. (laughs) So, he joined the army, and he was actually under the command of future United States president and general of the army, Dwight Eisenhower, at one point, and he intensely disliked him. <laughs> That's, I mean, in fairness, a lot of people did. Yep. Again, all this military, there's this, like, Americana, like, yeah. it's it's pretty, it's pretty thick. So, um, then, after he finished his uh, reign under Mr. Eisenhower, he was sent as a second lieutenant 
to Camp Sheridan near Montgomery, Alabama. He was at a local country club having a drink when Fitzgerald met and fell in love with Zelda Sayre, the youngest daughter of Alabama Supreme Court Justice Anthony D. Sayre. His position was not adequate. They fell in love immediately, but Zelda was like, you don't make enough money for me. Um, and dad also didn't, was like, nope. So they were engaged for like a like second, and then they broke off their engagement because he wasn't successful enough. So he's establishing a character theme for mm-hmm. his own life. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. So for the next couple years, because he was still deeply in love with her, and they did keep in touch. Like, she was like, if you can, like find a way to be worthy of me kind of thing so he worked as an advertiser um in like the new york area he moved back home to continue working on his writing and he eventually published his first novel this side of paradise which is a largely which is a largely autobiographical story about love and greed (laughs) it was uh also he used his little college girlfriend for a big um, influence of this character as well. Then he moved to Hyrule and started murdering monsters with his sword and smash. Never mind. Zelda Link oh. takes place in Hyrule. <laughs> and he, it's, wow, that that I wasn't ready for that turn. You are full of surprises, I baby. Know, I'm sorry. Uh, so it was published in in 1920 to glowing reviews, overnight success. Like Fitzgerald was like at age 24, one of the country's most promising writers. And so he was worthy of Zelda. Congratulations. They resumed their engagement and were married April 3rd, 1920 at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Oh, nice. Yeah. Pretty cathedral. Yep. Uh, on October 26, 1921, she gave birth to their only child, Francis Scott Scotty Fitzgerald. She goes by Scotty. Um, so as she emerged from anesthesia from like the childbirth, Zelda is recorded saying, quote, Oh, God, go foe, I'm drunk. Mark Twain, isn't she smart? She has the hiccups. I hope it's beautiful and a fool, a beautiful little fool. This was actually transcribed and put almost verbatim into Daisy Buchanan's dialogue in The Great Gatsby. Wow. Also, Mark Twain again. Yep. <laughs> we can't escape him. No. It's because he's a dick. I love that she randomly, just randomly, its own sentence, Mark Twain, as she comes out of anesthesia. Like, what? <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? It's um. So part of why I'm afraid to go to doctors is because every time they put me under anesthesia, I wake up quoting Mark Twain. Get out of here. Uh, in New York City, the Fitzgeralds quickly became celebrities for their wild behavior. Uh, this and his success with The Side of Paradise and his second novel, The Beautiful and the Damned. Uh, he like had money and they were out drinking. They got thrown out of hotels. Zelda would jump in fountains in the middle of the night. Yeah. Like, um, Living like real fucking rock stars. Real rock stars. And on top of that, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald was an alcoholic um from about then that's what he kind of became notorious for um they'd show up to parties and just go take a nap wow (laughs) and then they'd wake up and like it'd be crazy like it was like um how's how's the party going it's great uh scott is taking a nap but when he when he wakes up shit's gonna go when they wake up it's gonna be cray cray yeah 
And the couple would later be seen as the epitome of this period of the like 20s. The 20s, yeah. Uh, Ring Lardner Jr., who we have read, labeled them as the prince and the princess of their generation. I wonder if you ever gave one of them a haircut. <laughs> In spring of 1924, Fitzgerald moved him, his daughter, and Zelda to France. Uh, and he began writing his third novel, which would eventually become The Great Gatsby. He'd been planning the novel for a long time and said it was going to be this extraordinarily beautiful new thing. Fitzgerald declined an offer of $10,000 for serial rights because he didn't want to delay the book's publication. On the release of in April 1925, fellow writers like T.S. Eliot and Edith Wharton, my favorite, my favorite girl, praised Fitzgerald, uh, praised Fitzgerald's work. So praise the book. But it was snubbed by critics. And people didn't buy it. Uh, it would take decades and post-mortem before the book would actually be the success that we know it today, like most artists. So this was stressful for him because they weren't going to make as much money and they were living a very extravagant lifestyle. So all of a sudden it's like, well, we're going to pretend. Um, that always goes well. Yep. So while he was working on this book and like early in the like... Uh, publication of it zelda decided she was going to have an affair this is the first of many in the couple uh she was became infatuated with this french naval aviator and asked him for a divorce after just six weeks with this guy he decided instead of confronting yozan this guy's name j-o-z-a-n sure whatever um he decided to just lock zelda and him in the house until she abandoned her request for divorce I do not condone locking people in houses, um, but, you know. No, but I also don't condone, you know, asking your husband for a divorce so you can go have a fling with a French naval French officer. Student, which, funny enough, was not aware she asked for a divorce and had already left the Riviera. <laughs> like, he's like, I got what I want came for. He, like, he had no intention of, like, being in a relationship with her. They, He just thought they were having a good time. Yep. Because it was that time. It was like the swinging 20s. Uh, after this, uh, they would alternate between Paris and the French Riviera until 1926. And Fitzgerald began writing his fourth novel. So during this period, he became friends with many of the members of the American expatriate community. But his best friend from this was Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway did not get along with Zelda. And in addition to him describing her as insane in his memoir... Hemingway claimed that Zelda encouraged her husband to drink as to distract Fitzgerald from work on his novel so he could work on short stories that he sold to magazines, which made him more money and helped support their lifestyle. Also in his memoirs, A Movable Feast, Hemingway claimed that Zelda taunted Fitzgerald over the size of his penis. After examining it in a public restroom, Hemingway told Fitzgerald, you're perfectly fine assuring him that it was larger than all of the statues at the Louvre. <laughs> that is a real story. <laughs> that is a true story. <laughs> like, dude, I'd stack you up against any of those Romans. You're good. So he basically was like, she's crazy, and wait for it. Um, in 1926, Fitzgerald was invited to relocate to Hollywood to write a flapper comedy for United Artists. He, ah, 
<laughs> so he agreed and moved to the studio-owned bungalow where he soon met and began an affair with 17-year-old starlet Lois Moran. Mm. It was a different time. This is still when people were, like, getting married at 13. Oh. So at least she was almost 18. I don't know. I don't condone that either. The starlet became a muse for uh, Fitzgerald. Now, this caused Zelda to become jealous, obviously, even though she had an affair earlier and was making fun of his penis. So, I mean, whatever. Uh, Zelda burned all of her clothing in a self-destructive act to, like, cause a scene. Sure. Because that's a good way to get back at anyone is to burn your own shit. Well, wait for it. The affair... Um, continued these marital difficulties that they'd hidden so well because they were the party couple. So, like, they were, you know, it's like that very combustible, like, energy. Um, Well, it's about to combust. So they left Hollywood after two months because he he was trying to save the marriage, and he was like, "Uh, my bad, my bad. Uh, They rented a mansion near Wilmington, Delaware, and he was still working on his fourth novel. (laughs) It's been a while. And uh, Zelda was... Uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. He packed up everything and took her to Switzerland where she could get some treatment because there was, I mean, treatment in America was... Because there was more treatment, better treatment available there. Better treatment for that kind of thing, which still was probably not very good treatment. Uh, They were there for a year, and then she was hospitalized again in February 1932 in John Hopkins. So he finally got... Through all this, he finally did publish his fourth novel called Tender is the Night, and it also received mixed opinions and whatnot, and it did not live up to expectations, so again, nothing. So he was. this was also in the midst of the Great Depression, and because of this and the extravagant lifestyle they had lived and Zelda's medical bills and all this, he started to really feel this Great Depression and like feeling that. He was also an alcoholic, which I mentioned earlier, and so he started having severe health issues, um, including like coronary artery disease and whatnot. And so he also was in and out of John Hopkins like nine times with health issues. In 1936, Zelda had become really violent. He had her placed at Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, Nearly bankrupt, he also spent the next few years living in various hotels in the Asheville area. So we are currently in Asheville. Just outside of. This was cur- this was definitely made. This was the story we were supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> or the, at least the author. Yep. Because there are way too many connections. The last time he saw Zelda was when they went on a trip to Cuba, and it was just like a mess. And when he was done, he was exhausted, he was hospitalized, and then he was like, no, I'm going to move to Hollywood. So he like basically left Zelda in the Institute, as was instructed, and moved back to Hollywood to try and start a fifth novel called The Last Tycoon. But he did not finish it as he died of a heart attack on December 21st, 1940, at the age of 44. He died believing he was a failure. Uh, during his lifetime, he published four novels and 164 short stories. Wow. Yep. Um, and much like most artists, he did not receive wild, critical, and popular acclaim until after his death. So uh, what he's most famous for and why he's become like critically successful is this whole idea of he took a closer look at um, America 
and his doubts about the Americans' ability to survive their infatuation with material success. On that note, today you are going to be reading a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald entitled The Baby Party. Let's get this party started. Start the fire. The Baby Party by F. Scott Fitzgerald. When John Andros felt old, he found solace in the thought of life continuing through his child. The dark trumpets of oblivion were less loud at the patter of his child's feet or at the sound of his child's voice babbling mad non-sequiturs to him over the telephone. I feel the same way when Lina meows. <laughs> you, you, uh, you feel that the dark trumpets <laughs> of oblivion are less loud when your cat meows? Um, I would like to point out anyone who has a fur baby when they're their animal makes a noise and it makes them smile, the dark trumpets of oblivion definitely go away for a while. The latter (laughs) incident occurred every afternoon at three when his wife called the office from the country and he came to look forward to it as one of the vivid mimic, as one of the vivid mimic, oh no, oh no. We found one of that actually messes with Ken's tongue. Oh gosh! And he came to look at it. <laughs> oh, oh no! Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> the latter incident occurred every afternoon at three when his wife called the office from the country, and he came to look forward to it as one of the vivid minutes of his day. He was not physically old, but his life had been a series of struggles up a series of rugged hills, and here, at 38, having won his battles against ill health and poverty, he cherished less than the usual number of illusions. Wait a minute. Okay, so I picked him because 4th of July, and then Mm -hmm. there was all that Americana shit on top of him being an American writer. Now, this is a story about a 38-year-old who's like, life's been rough, man. Yep. Although he is acknowledging, straight up, he's not He's not old. really old. He just fucking feels it. Yo, um, I have those days. After that Spartan race tomorrow, I'm going to feel 38. You're going to feel old. <laughs> Damn. Even his feeling about his little girl was qualified. She had interrupted his rather intense love affair with his wife, and she was the reason for their living in a suburban town where they paid for country air with endless servant troubles and the weary merry-go-round of the commuting train. Yeah, she's fine, but uh, we don't have sex anymore, and... uh Uh, damn it. (laughs) It was little Edie as a definite piece of youth that chiefly interested him. He liked to take her on his lap and examine minutely her fragrant downy scalp and her eyes with their irises of morning blue. Having paid his homage, John was content that the nurse should take her away. 
After 10 minutes, the very vitality of the child irritated him. <laughs> he was inclined to lose his temper when things were broken, and one Sunday afternoon when she had disrupted a bridge game by permanently hiding up the ace of spades, he had made a scene that had reduced his wife to tears. Oh, no. Oh, no. This was absurd, and John was ashamed of himself. <laughs> Good. It was inevitable that such things would happen, and it was impossible that little Edie should spend all her indoor hours in the nursery upstairs when she was becoming, as her mother said, more nearly a real person every day. I want to point out that the name Little Edie is uh, definitely the name of the Grey Gardens, uh younger like the the, the daughter <laughs> she goes by little edie <laughs> oh dear oh no <laughs> she was two and a half and this afternoon for instance she was going to a baby party grown-up edith her mother had telephoned the information to the office and little edie had confirmed the business by shouting into John's unsuspecting left ear. A drop in at the Markies when you get home, won't you, dear? Resumed her mother. It'll be funny. Edie's going to be all dressed up in her new pink dress. The conversation terminated abruptly with a squawk, which indicated that the telephone had been pulled violently to the floor. John laughed and decided to get an early train out. The prospect of a baby party in someone else's house amused him. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Also, I love it's called a baby party. It's not, uh, like, I'm assuming it was like a birthday party and or just a play date? Could also be a baby shower? No, that doesn't make sense. Why would all the babies yeah, be going? Yeah, why all babies go? Like, I feel like it's like... Maybe one of the kids has chicken pox. Oh, and they want them all to get chicken pox. I think this was before chicken pox. Because this story was published in 1925. So, <laughs> when did chicken pox become a thing? It was basically the mumps, right? Or the measles. I don't remember. Hasn't, hasn't chicken pox been a thing since like 6,000 BC? I don't think so. I think it's like COVID. It like appeared. That's really? why we have a vaccine for it. Or if you get it once, it's shingles. Shingles. It's the same virus as shingles, yeah. yeah. So once you've had chicken pox, you're less likely to get the virus shingles because it is a, like, variant of it or something. I don't know. I. <laughs> hey, Dr. Catherine or one of the smart people that we've promoted or anyone else of our listeners who understand medication and medicine, when did chicken pox become a thing? How does chicken pox work? And what's it have to do with chickens? And what happens at a baby party? I guess we're going to find that out. What a peach of a mess, he thought humorously. A dozen mothers and each one looking at nothing but her own child. All the babies breaking things and grabbing at the cake <laughs> and each mama going home thinking about the subtle superiority of her own child to every other child there. <laughs> he was in a good humor today. 
All the things in his life were going better than they had ever gone before. When he got off the train at his station, he shook his head at an importunate taxi man and began to walk up the long hill towards his house through the crisp December twilight. It was only six o'clock, but the moon was out, shining with proud brilliance on the thin, sugary snow that lay over the lawns. Oh, see, I was assuming it was summer, and there would be, like, a baby party and, like, a baby pool, and, like, nope, it's fucking cold. We're throwing kids in the water. Why? Because <laughs> it's funny. Only the strong survive. It's the baby party is, like, the hunger games of babies. They just, they bring 12 babies... And you throw them all in the lake, and the one that gets out wins. It's UBF, ultimate baby fighting. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, God. Y'all, that should be on ESPN3 right now. <laughs> I feel like you can't do it on ESPN3, though. I feel like you have to do that in some country where they don't take things like insurance or human life too seriously. It's like the equivalent of cockfighting. <laughs> But with babies. That's fucked up. Yeah. No, it's funnier in my head than it is in reality, like most things. And the babies all get little Nerf switchblades. I was about to say, I'm like, are these like babies or are they toddlers? Because clearly little Edie is a toddler. Well, there are different divisions. Oh, There are different divisions. It's like a beauty patch. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) It stops being fun once they hit five. That's accurate. (laughs) It's only fun tormenting children up until about kindergarten. Until they have knowledge. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember where I was. Something about. Oh, yeah. It's Christmas. Yeah. It's a Christmas party. You know, <laughs> traditional American Christmas party. Give the babies Nerf knives and let them fight each other. <laughs> and see, my brain went to they're all dressed up like Jesus, like baby Jesus. Yeah. With Nerf Last knives. one on the cross wins. Oh my God, you're going to have to edit so much. First one out of the grave wins? That's Easter. <laughs> Still Jesus. All right, all right. I'm so, I cannot wait to hear what this baby party is and how lame it actually is. As he walked along, drawing his lungs full of the cold air, his happiness increased. And the idea of a baby party appealed to him more and more. See, I think he thinks it's like an, like a, a Thunderdome situation. He began to wonder how Edie compared to the other children of her own age, which is important because he doesn't know only where to one place one his best, man. And if the pink dress she was to wear was something radical and mature. <laughs> Increasing his gait, he came in sight of his own house, where the lights of a defunct Christmas tree still blossomed in the window, but he continued on past the walk. The party was at the Marquis next door. As he mounted the brick step and rang the bell, he became aware of the voices inside, and he was glad he was not too late. Then he raised his head and listened. The voices were not children's voices, but they were loud and pitched high with anger. There were at least three of them, and one which rose as he listened to a hysterical sob he recognized immediately as his wife's. There's been some trouble, he thought quickly. Trying the door, he found it unlocked and pushed it open. 
um, apparently the fights have gone poorly and people <laughs> are upset about how much money is exchanging hands. Yeah, apparently the Thunderdome is alive and well. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's a double space here, so oh. I think I think we're switching POVs. Oh, got it. Oh. The baby party started at half past four, but Edith Andros, calculating shrewdly that the new dress would stand out more sensationally amongst vestments already rumpled, planned the arrival of herself and little Edie for five. <laughs> when they appeared, it was already a flourishing affair. Four baby girls and nine baby boys, each one curled and washed and dressed with all the care of a proud and jealous heart, were dancing to the music of a phonograph. Never more than two or three were dancing at once, but as all were continually in motion, running to and from their mothers for encouragement, the general effect was the same. Wow. Okay. So it's like a baby discotheque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think the 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 idea is still the same. It's just a dance battle instead of Oh, nice. Yeah. Dance battle. Yeah. Cuz babies dance real good. Yeah. As Edith and her daughter entered, the music was temporarily drowned out by a sustained chorus consisting largely of the word and directed toward little Edie, who stood looking timidly about and fingering the edges of her pink dress. She was not kissed, this is a sanitary age, but she was passed along a row of mamas, each one of whom said, cute. There are three U's separated by hyphens in that typing. Yes, there are. To her and held her pink little hand before passing her to the next. After some encouragement and a few mild pushes, she was absorbed into the dance and became an active member of the party. Oh, cute. Cute. It's like me when I see puppies. <laughs> Edith stood near the door talking to Mrs. Markey and keeping an eye on the tiny figure in the pink dress. She did not care for Mrs. Markey. She considered her both snippy and common. But John and Joe Markey were congenial and went in together on the commuting train every morning, so the two women kept up an elaborate pretense of warm amity. Yep. <laughs> Frenemies. They were always reproaching each other for not coming to see me. And they were always planning the kind of parties that begin with, you'll have to come to dinner with us soon and we'll go to the theater, but never matured further. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Little Edie looks perfectly darling, said Mrs. Markey, smiling and moistening her lips yeah. in a way that Edith found particularly repulsive. <laughs> So grown up, I can't believe it. <laughs> Edith wondered if little Edie referred to the fact that Billy Markey, though several months younger, weighed almost five pounds more. <laughs> Fat baby. Yes, it's never too early to start body shaming Body shaming babies, yeah. Yeah, for because sure. Because if you don't start getting it in early, they're never going to get in shape for the baby fights. See, body shame them, and then uh, they'll be they'll be ready for the world. Yeah. 
Tell them they have to look more like My Little Pony. <laughs> as long as you don't scratch and sniff <laughs> their butts. Don't scratch and sniff their butts. Although, with babies, you're often smelling their butts. Well, Whether not, you like not it or intentionally. Not. <laughs> I prefer sniffing their heads. Like, because like, they always smell like baby. <laughs> Fresh baby head. Babies are basically scratch and sniff my little ponies. You're always smelling them. They go around on all fours. They're kind of round and chubby. Got little rolls. They're cute. You can stuff them in your purse. (laughs) They're cheaper by the dozen. Are they? I don't know. There's a movie called that. Oh, yeah. I I think that was a sarcastic statement. That's probably true. I can't imagine that babies are cheaper by the dozen. Accepting a cup of tea, she took a seat with two other ladies on a divan and launched into the real business of the afternoon, which, of course, lay in relating the recent accomplishments and insouciances of her child. Insouciousness. Yes, that is exactly what I yep. just said. Insosniousnessnessness. Yep. Gotta spell it for me then. I N S A U S N S N S N S N S N S N. Insouciance. Ooh, it sounds French. That was very French. It's a noun. Casual lack of concern, indifference. Oh, okay. So the accomplishments and the sort of trivialities. Yeah, like nonchalance. There we go. Is another word for it. Cool. Accepting a cup of tea, she took a seat with two other ladies on the divan and launched into the real business of the afternoon, which, of course, lay in relating the recent accomplishments and insouciances of her child. (laughs) An hour passed. Dancing palled and the babies took to sterner sport. This is when the fighting this starts. Is when the, this is when the rumble begins. They ran into the dining room, rounded the big table, and essayed the kitchen door from which they were rescued by an extraordinary force of mothers. Having been rounded up, they immediately broke loose and rushing back to the dining room, tried the familiar swinging door again. The word overheated began to be used and small white brows were dried with small white handkerchiefs oh these babies are not allowed to be babies a general attempt to make the babies sit down began but the babies squirmed off laps with peremptory cries of down down (laughs) and the rush into the fascinating dining room began anew This phase of the party came to an end with the arrival of refreshments, a Uh large cake with two candles and saucers of vanilla ice cream. So it is someone's birthday. Oh, good. A bunch of misbehaving children should definitely be given sugar. Sugar. I mean... You know, it'll keep them, it'll, it'll shut them up for a couple minutes because they'll get excited and then eat the cake. Um, 
And then you should end the party and take them home and hand them to the baby nurse because they all seem to have one. (laughs) Billy Markey, a stout laughing boy with red hair and legs somewhat bowed, blew out the candles and placed an experimental thumb on the white frosting. The refreshments were distributed, and the children ate greedily but without confusion. They had behaved remarkably well all afternoon. They were modern babies who ate and slept at regular hours, so their dispositions were good and their faces healthy and pink. Such a peaceful party would not have been possible 30 years ago. Our babies have a schedule and they adhere to said schedule. <laughs> our generation wasn't nearly so well behaved. Mm. Oh, look how sweet they look are, darling. Look how good our babies are. After the refreshments, a gradual exodus began. Edith glanced anxiously at her watch. It was almost six and John had not arrived. She wanted him to see Edie with the other children and see how dignified and polite and intelligent she was and how the only ice cream spot on her dress was some that had dropped from her chin when she was joggled from behind. Oh, who joggled her? What a bitch. I don't know. (laughs) It's probably that redheaded kid. Why are you going around joggling babies, you weirdo? (laughs) Again, something that maybe in some country with not such strict insurance laws. I feel like this all this this entire all these like mythical countries are definitely where Borat is from. Yes. Yeah. My wife. Uh, Little lady. Brother-in-law, best baby juggler. (laughs) You're a darling, she whispered to her child, drawing her suddenly against her knee. Do you know you're a darling? Do you know you're a darling? (laughs) Edie laughed. Bow wow, she said suddenly. (laughs) Bow wow. Edith looked around. There isn't any bow wow. Bow wow, repeated Edie. I want a bow. Damn right she does. Edith followed the small pointing finger. That isn't a bow wow, dearest. That's a teddy bear. Aww. Bear? Yes, that's a teddy bear, and it belongs to Billy Markey. You don't want Billy Markey's teddy bear, do you? Uh. Edie did want it. Yeah. <laughs> She broke away from her mother and approached Billy Markey, who held the toy closely in his arms. Edie stood regarding him with inscrutable eyes, and Billy laughed. Grown-up Edith looked at her watch again, this time impatiently. The party had dwindled until, besides Edie and Billy, there were only two babies remaining, and one of the two remained only by virtue of having hidden himself under the dining room table. I love it. All the babies are well behaved, except for the one that smashed itself under the dining room table and no one can reach him. (laughs) Which is basically just me at any party. It was selfish of John not to come. It showed so little pride in a child. Other fathers had come, half a dozen of them, to call for their wives. To and be they fair, they all came at some point if they had a baby. Ah. Uh, hey! <laughs> I, I, 
had to get it in there. I mean, you said that come. Other fathers had come. Most fathers do. If they haven't, it's the milkman's baby. You are not the father. <laughs> as Maury Povich would say. Yes. <laughs> All right, so fathers are coming, and John's not. Which is really something you shouldn't do at a party full of children. <laughs> they want more children, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe all the babies get together so that the... The love affairs can continue. So that all the swinging can happen upstairs. Yeah, a, little swing, a little swinger party. It's a swinger party. That's what this is. I, I knew it. It's a baby party as in like, let's make babies. Let's make babies. There's happened to be babies there. We're going to let the toddlers hang out downstairs and fight each other with Nerf switchblades while we go upstairs and, and... Bang, bang into the roof. <laughs> there was a sudden wail. Edie had obtained Billy's teddy bear by Uh pulling it forcibly from his arms, and on Billy's attempt to recover it, she had pushed him casually to the floor, and ultimate baby fighting has has begun! begun. (laughs) We knew it! (laughs) Why, Edie, cried her mother, repressing the inclination to laugh. Joe Markey, a handsome, broad-shouldered man of 35, picked up his son and set him on his feet. You're a fine fellow, he said jovially. Let a girl knock you over. You're a fine fellow. Oh, yeah. Instill those sexist things in their heads early, too. (laughs) Did he bump his head? Mrs. Markey returned anxiously from bowing the next-to-last remaining mother out the door. No, exclaimed Markey. He bumped something else, didn't you, Billy? He bumped something else. His butt? His ding-dong? My (laughs) ding-a-ling! My (laughs) ding-a-ling! What did he bump? Billy had so far forgotten the bump that he was already making an attempt to recover his property. He seized the leg of the bear, which projected from Edie's enveloping arms, and tugged at it, but without success. No! said Edie emphatically. Suddenly encouraged by the success of her former half-accidental maneuver, Edie dropped the teddy bear, placed her hands on Billy's shoulders, and pushed him backward (laughs) off his feet. (laughs) Yes! Little Edie for the win! (laughs) Yes! I love that we said this was going to be baby wars, and there was no way that was going to happen, but took, here we are. It took are. a while for it to get there, here but eventually. Here we are. Eventually. <laughs> baby wars. All things. Ultimate l- baby fighting. Lead to the UBF. <laughs> all roads lead to UBF. <laughs> to Next avoid, Sunday on pay-per-view. To avoid UBF, get an IUD. You like that? You like that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This time he landed less harmlessly. (gasps) He hit his head on the bare floor just off the rug with a dull, hollow sound, whereupon he drew in his breath and delivered an agonized yell. 
Uh-oh. Immediately, the room was in confusion. With an exclamation, Marky hurried to his son, but his wife was first to reach the injured baby and catch him up in her arms. Oh, Billy, she cried. What a terrible bump. She ought to be spanked. <laughs> Edith, who had rushed immediately Whoa. to her daughter, heard this remark. Her lips came sharply together. Why, Edie, she whispered perfunctorily, you bad girl. Oh. Edie put back her little head suddenly and laughed. <laughs> it was a loud laugh, a triumphant laugh with victory in it and challenge and contempt. Edie is my girl. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was also an infectious laugh. Oh. Before her mother realized the delicacy of the situation, she too had laughed. <laughs> An audible, distinct laugh, not unlike the baby's, and partaking of the same overtones. Oh no! <laughs> then, as suddenly, she stopped. <laughs> Mrs. Markey's face had grown red with anger. And Marky, who had been feeling the back of the baby's head with one finger, looked at her, frowning. It's swollen already, he said with a note of reproof in his voice. I'll get some witch hazel. Well, damn. <laughs> but Mrs. Marky had lost her temper. I don't see anything funny about a child being hurt, she said in a trembling voice. She really would not have liked this episode so far. No, no, no. And Mrs. Markey needs to chill the fuck out because they babies. <laughs> Little Edie, meanwhile, had been looking at her mother curiously. She noted that her own laugh had produced her mother's, and she wondered if the same cause would always produce the same effect. So she chose this moment to throw back her head and laugh, and laugh again. <laughs> <laughs> to her mother, the additional mirth added the final touch of hysteria to the situation. Pressing her handkerchief to her mouth, she giggled irrepressibly. <laughs> it was more than nervousness. She felt that in a peculiar way, she was laughing with her child. They were laughing together. Aww. It was, in a way, a defiance. Those two against the world. Well, fuck the world, man. Laugh! Live, shove little bully buttholes down on the ground. That's what I got to say. Yeah, laugh, live, push babies. <laughs> She's a baby too. Push someone your own size <laughs> if they're being a dick. <laughs> not even physically, because, you know, physical violence is not always a good thing. But you push them with your words, with your ideas, with your, like, energy. Like, fuck those people. And then laugh. Because life is short and laugh. Welcome to Campfire Classics. <laughs> laugh, live, push babies. <laughs> they don't make that sign at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> <laughs> I want it stitched on a throw pillow. Yeah, can somebody make us a crocheted throw pillow with that saying? 
<laughs> Live, laugh, push babies. If you crochet that, dear listener, if you can put that on a pillow, I will buy it. Yeah. 100 I will buy that pillow from you. Yep. If you if you crochet it. <laughs> and bonus points if there's a baby falling back. Ideally there should be a little baby on it, but that's not a deal breaker. <laughs> if you crochet us a pillow or or stitch or I don't even like, know how you even do a it. crochet like a little like frame, like a yeah. like a frame picture like a like crochet. cross stitch? Yeah, like, like cross, a cross stitch. stitch thing. Yeah. yeah. If you are if you craft something with live laugh push, push babies. babies. We will display it for the world to see. Yeah, absolutely. Forever um, and always. If you do, if you do the like the the like wood burning thing, oh, yeah. where you 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 etch, yeah, you know what, um, whatever your craft, of whatever choice your craft is, one hundred percent. You make that sign pillow thing, and send us an email at fifty fifty artsproduction at gmail dot com. We'll buy it. We will buy it from you. We'll buy it, and then we will put it on our website and I mean, give you I'm, full credit. I'm not, I'm not saying I will pay any price for it. Like no. keep it, keep it reasonable. We're poor. Um, We're, we don't make a ton of money off this, but we'll but like we'll pay at, people for art. Hell yeah! Live, laugh, push babies. Yeah, for our classics. While Marky rushed upstairs to the bathroom for ointment, his wife was walking up and down, rocking the yelling boy in her arms. Please go home, she broke out suddenly. (laughs) The child's badly hurt, and if you haven't the decency to be quiet, you'd better go home. Very well, said Edith, her own temper rising. I've never seen anyone make such a mountain out of... Get out, cried Mrs. Markey frantically. There's the door, get out! I never want to see you again in our house. You or your brat either. Edith had taken her daughter's hand and was moving quickly towards the door. But at this remark, she stopped and turned around, her face contracting with indignation. Don't you dare call her that. Mrs. Markey did not answer, but continued walking up and down, muttering to herself and to Billy in an inaudible voice. (laughs) Edith began to cry. I will get out, she sobbed. I've never heard anybody so rude and common in my life. I'm glad your baby did get pushed down. He's nothing but a fat little fool anyway. (laughs) Joe Markey reached the foot of the stairs just in time to hear this remark. Why, Mrs. Andros, he said sharply. Can't you see the child's hurt? You really ought to control yourself. Control myself, Edith (laughs) exclaimed brokenly. You better ask her to control herself. I've never heard anybody so common in my life. She's insulting me, (laughs) Mrs. Markey was now livid with rage. Did you hear what she said, Joe? I wish you'd Put her out. If she won't go, just take her by the shoulders and put her out. Don't you dare touch me, cried Edith. I'm going just as quick as I can find my coat. Blind with tears, she took a step towards the hall. It was just at this moment that the door opened and John Andros walked anxiously in. John, cried Edith, and fled to him wildly. What's the matter? Why, what's the matter? They're, they're putting me out, she 
she wailed, collapsing against him. He just started to take me by the shoulders and put me out. I want my coat. That's not true, objected Marky hurriedly. Nobody's going to put you out, he turned to John. Nobody's going to put her out, he repeated. She's, what do you mean, put her out, demanded John abruptly. What's all this talk, anyhow? Oh, let's go, cried Edith. (laughs) I want to go. They're so common, John. (laughs) Look here, Marky's face darkened. You've said that about enough. You're acting sort of crazy. They called Edie a brat. For the second time that afternoon, little Edie expressed emotion at an inopportune moment. Confused and frightened at all the shouting voices, she began to cry. And her tears had the effect of conveying that she felt the insult in her heart. What's the idea of this, broke out John. Do you insult your guests in your own house? It seems to me it's your wife that's done the insulting, answered Marky crisply. In fact, your baby there started all the trouble. John gave a contemptuous snort. Are you calling names at a little baby? He inquired. That's a fine manly business. Yeah, tell me about it. Don't talk to him, John, insisted Edith. Find my coat. You must be in a bad way, went on John angrily. If you have to take out your temper on a helpless little baby. I've never heard anything so damn twisted in my life, (laughs) shouted Marky. If that wife of yours would shut her mouth for a minute. Wait a minute. You're not talking to a woman and child now. There was an incidental interruption. Edith had been fumbling on a chair for her coat, and Mrs. Markey had been watching her with hot, angry eyes. Suddenly, she laid Billy down on the sofa, where he immediately stopped crying and pulled himself upright. And coming into the hall, she quickly found Edith's coat and handed it to her without a word. Then she went back to the sofa, picked up Billy, and rocked him in her arms, looked again at Edith with hot, angry eyes. The interruption had taken less than half a minute. (laughs) Your wife comes in here and begins shouting around about how common we are, burst out Marky violently. Well, if we're so damn common, you'd better stay away. And what's more, you'd better get out now. Again, John gave a short (laughs) contemptuous laugh. You're not only common, he returned, you're evidently an awful bully when there's any helpless women and children around. He felt for the knob and swung the door open. Come on, Edith. Taking up her daughter in her arms, his wife stepped outside and John, still looking contemptuously at Marky, started to follow. Wait a minute! Marky took a step forward. He was trembling slightly, and two large veins on his temples were suddenly full of blood. Uh. You don't think you can get away with that, do you? With me? Oh. Without a word, 
John walked out the door, leaving it open. (laughs) Bye. Edith, still weeping, had started for home. After following her with his eyes until she reached her own walk, John turned back toward the lighted doorway where Marky was slowly coming down the slippery steps. He took off his overcoat and hat, tossed them off the path onto the snow. Then, sliding a little on the iced walk, he took a step forward. Uh oh At the first blow... <gasps> They both slipped and fell heavily onto the sidewalk, (laughs) half rising, then, and again, pulled each other to the ground. They found a better foothold in the thin snow to the side of the walk and rushed at each other, both swinging wildly and pressing out the snow into a pasty mud underfoot. (laughs) The street was deserted, and except for their short, tired gasps and the padded sound as one or the other slipped down onto the mushy mud, they fought in silence, clearly defined to each other by the full moonlight as well as by the amber glow that shone out of the open door. Oh my god. Several times they both slipped down together, and then for a while the conflict threshed about wildly on the lawn. I would argue that this is still ultimate baby fighting because they're acting like little fucking babies. <laughs> UBF continued with full grown men. Uh, so the the UBF fight was just the undercard for the drunken dad fight. Yeah, but they're neither one of them. Is dr- neither one of them has been drinking. Fair, fair point. The belligerent dad fight. <laughs> the uh, m- uh, my penis might not be bigger than the guys at the Louvre fight. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. They just need to take off each other's pants and look, and make sure that their their dicks look okay. Yeah. They need to have a better relationship. They need to have a friend like Hemingway who will s- look who at their will junk look at, their at the penis toilet in the public bathroom and tell them it's all good. You, you just got like, bigger, Dude, you're bigger fine. dicks than Michelangelo. <laughs> Dude, you're fine. The David ain't got nothing on you. <laughs> For 10, 15, 20 minutes. Holy shit. They fought there senselessly in the moonlight. That's an HBO special right there. That's like, that, people pay good money for fights that last that long. They had both taken off their coats and vests at some silently agreed upon interval. They're going to get naked. And now they're sure. Yeah, well, they're slowly working towards (laughs) taking off their pants so they can see whose dick is bigger. And then the fight will end. And then the fight will be over because that's what this is all about. Yep. Um, UBF actually also stands for ultimate balls fighting, like whoever has the biggest. Yeah. (laughs) Unquestioned biggest phallus. There you go. Hey. Now their shirts dripped from their backs in wet, pulpy shreds. Both were torn and bleeding and so exhausted that they could stand only when, by their position, they mutually supported each other. The impact, the mere effort of a blow, would send them both to their hands and knees. But it was not weariness that ended the business. And the very meaninglessness of the fight was the reason for not stopping. They stopped because once when they were straining at each other on the ground, they heard a man's footsteps coming along the sidewalk. 
They had rolled somehow into a shadow, and when they heard these footsteps, they stopped fighting, stopped moving, stopped breathing, laid huddled together like two boys hiding until the footsteps had passed. Then, staggering to their feet, they looked at each other like two drunken men. (laughs) Well, they're drunk with rage. I'll be damned if I'm going on with this thing anymore, cried Marky thickly. I'm not going on anymore either, said John Andros. (laughs) I've had enough of this thing. Again, they looked at each other, sulkily this time, as if each suspected the other of urging him to a renewal of the fight. Marky spat out a mouthful of blood from a cut lip. Then he cursed softly and picked up his coat and vest, shook off the snow from them in a surprised way as if their comparative dampness was his only worry in the world. Want to come in and wash up? He asked suddenly. (laughs) No, thanks, said John. I ought to be going home. My wife will be worried. (laughs) Yeah, where the fuck did the wives and children go? They're just like, okay. Jesus. He too picked up his coat and vest and then his overcoat and hat. Soaking wet and dripping with perspiration, it seemed absurd that less than half an hour ago he had been wearing all these clothes. <laughs> well, <clears throat> good night, he said hesitantly. <laughs> Suddenly, they walked towards each other and shook hands. <laughs> It was no perfunctory handshake. John Andrus' arm went around Marky's shoulder, and he patted him softly on the back for a little while. No harm done, he said brokenly. (laughs) No. You? No, no, no harm done. (laughs) Well, said John Andrus after a minute, I guess I'll say goodnight. Limping slightly, and with his clothes over his arm, John Andrus turned away. The moonlight was still bright as he left the dark patch of trampled ground and walked over the intervening lawn. Down at the station, half a mile away, he could hear the rumble of the seven o'clock train. But you must have been crazy, cried Edith brokenly. I thought you were going to fix it all up there and shake hands. That's why I went away. Um, They did shake hands. It just took a while. Did you want us to fix it up? Of course not. I never want to see them again. But I thought, of course, that was what you were going to do. She was touching the bruises on his neck and back with iodine as he sat placidly in a hot bath. I'm going to get the doctor, she said insistently. You may be hurt internally. He shook his head. (laughs) Not a chance, he answered. I don't want this to get all over the town. I don't understand yet how it all happened. Neither do I, he smiled grimly. (laughs) I guess these baby parties are pretty rough affairs. (laughs) The craziest place in town, baby party. Well, one thing, suggested Edith, hopefully. I'm certainly glad we have beefsteak in the house for tomorrow's dinner. 
Why? <laughs> For your eye, of course. Uh, Do you know I came within an ace of ordering veal? Wasn't that the luckiest thing? <laughs> Half an hour later, dressed except that his neck would accommodate no collar, John moved his limbs experimentally before the glass. I believe I'll get myself in better shape, he said thoughtfully. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the gym. <laughs> Must be getting old. <laughs> you mean so that next time you can beat him? <laughs> I did beat him, oh. he announced. <laughs> At least I beat him as much as he beat me. <laughs> And there isn't going to be any next time. Don't you go calling people common anymore. If you get in any trouble, you just take your coat and go home. Understand? <laughs> I love that common was like the dirtiest word that she could say. <laughs> it's not like you. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> yes, dear. She said meekly. I was very foolish, and I understand that. Out in the hall, he paused abruptly at the baby's door. Is she asleep? Sound asleep. But you can go in and peek at her just to say goodnight. They tiptoed in, bent together over the bed. Little Edie, her cheeks flushed with health, her pink hands clasped tight together, was sleeping soundly in the cool, dark room. John reached over the railing of the bed and passed his hand lightly over her silken hair. She's asleep, he murmured in a puzzled way. Naturally, after such an afternoon. Miss Andros, the maid's stage whisper floated from the hall. <laughs> Mr. and Ms. Markey downstairs and want to see you. Mr. Markey, he's all... Cut up in pieces, ma'am. His face looks like roast beef. Ew. Oh, God. And Miss Markey, she seems mighty mad. Oh, no. Why, what incomparable nerve, exclaimed Edith. Just tell them we're not home. I wouldn't go down for anything in the world. You most certainly will, John's voice was hard and set. What? You'll go down right now, and what's more, whatever the other woman does, you'll apologize for what you said this afternoon. After that, you don't ever have to see her again. Why, John, I can't. You've got to, and just remember that she probably hated to come over here twice as much as you hate to go downstairs. Aren't you coming? Do I have to go alone? I'll be down in just a minute. Oh, no. John Andros waited until she had closed the door behind her. Then he reached over into the bed and picked up his daughter, blankets and all, sat down in the rocking chair, holding her tightly in his arms. She moved a little, and he held his breath. But she was sleeping soundly and in a moment she was resting quietly in the hollow of his elbow. Slowly, he bent his head until his cheek was against her bright hair. Dear little girl, he whispered. Dear little girl. Dear little girl. 
John Andros knew at length what it was he had fought for so savagely that evening. He had it now. He possessed it forever, and for some time he sat there rocking very slowly to and fro in the darkness. Yeah, that was sweet. <laughs> it was it was not sweet until it was. <laughs> yeah, it was a wild ride. That was insane. the The summary I read before I like when I was like, "This sounds funny," was just like families gather at a baby party to celebrate. Um. An argument ensues, and we ask, like, we ask ourselves, who is the baby, or something like that. That's like, what was the, it was yeah. like this little, like, two, like, sentence, and I went, okay, that's funny. Yep. <laughs> I was like, I t- <laughs> clearly, the babies at that party were not the children. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all you parents out there. Um, that one was just, for you. Just go out and live. Just go out and, and laugh. laugh. <laughs> just go out and push your push babies. Your babies. <laughs> and then laugh at them so they learn that it's funny. <laughs> yeah. And then someday, when they grow up and push you over, laugh. There you go. <laughs> I think it was appropriate that we did uh, It Goes Down in the PM as our promo today, because she's a mother, the host. And uh, also, uh, it went down in the PM at the baby party. Yeah. <laughs> it went down many times over and over again. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's what we did. Um, happy 4th of July. <laughs> yep. Happy America's birthday from F. Scott Fitzgerald, his uh, namesake who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, and his aunt who was hung for trying to assassinate a president. (laughs) Such a proud lineage that family has. Truly, truly. (laughs) Uh, Good. Good, yes. good indeed. That was so, fun. So, what what did you think of uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald? Was this the first story by him that you have heard aside from Great Gatsby? It was mine because it was certainly mine. It was mine. If you like this one, please reach out to us on social media or through our email address, 5050artsproduction at gmail.com, and send us the message push babies. Push babies. <laughs> You're going to get some weird Google ads after that, um, but don't worry about it. It's worth it. Totally worth it. And if you are a artsy, craftsy person, we would love to see your version of the shitty Hobby Lobby signs that you see that are like live, laugh, love, but instead live, laugh, push push babies. babies. <laughs> we would love to see what you have and uh, we'll, we'll purchase it from you, you know, at a decent price. Um and we love it. We love our listeners. So check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the places. We got a website. Tell five of your friends about the podcast because that makes the pyramid scheme work. Yep. Yeah. And you don't even have to buy into it. I mean, you can. You can go to Patreon and buy into and you it. You can do that. But you don't have to. Just tell five friends. Um, if you haven't already, please 
uh, take the time to go to Podbean or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever the hell it is you're listening to this right now and like and subscribe and give us a review. And a review because that's how we get more listeners. That's exciting because who doesn't want to listen to us get excited about Baby Wars? Ultimate baby fighting. Ultimate baby wars. Babies. Uh cool. You got anything else? Uh no. I think that I think that's it. That was that was episode fifty-four. All right. Well, uh thanks for stopping by. And until next week, this has been Capfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Bow well? Bow well? Hmm. I'm gonna push your face!